is a fruit of the Spirit. And I'm, uh, I'm certain that uh, you have defined the fruit of the Spirit and what that is, so I won't take a whole lot of time in doing that, but uh, perhaps just a, a word or two about that as we begin. Grateful to have my father with me tonight. He will be 88 years old in September, and do you know he still climbs trees? He is an avid deer hunter, and... Um, he will be in his stand, Lord willing, this coming deer season. And I tell people that even though he climbs trees, he is not in any way a, an argument for evolution. But uh, I, I'm grateful that he's here and that he's been, uh, he's been my sidekick and, and by my side for many years. And uh, I, I'm grateful that God, God has blessed us this way. All right. Fruit from the Greek word karpos, literally describes the produce of trees, it describes uh, the produce of vines, and even crops, and it can also describe children, the fruit of the womb, uh, from a scriptural standpoint. This metaphorical meaning uh, occurs often in scripture. One of the uh, questions that Kyle gave me in reference to this uh, theme tonight is the importance of what we read in Hebrews 13, 15, giving the Lord the fruit of our lips. And I want to indicate something to you that I believe uh, in the study of this passage. I certainly believe that it includes the fruit of our lips in worship. But I'm not so sure in this chapter that it's limited to our worship. I, I do not believe that the Bible teaches that all of life is worship for plenty of reasons. And if we have time, we may get into some of those tonight. Uh, uh, all worship is service, but certainly not all service is worship. But I want to look at Hebrews chapter 13. I want to make a few comments about this chapter so we can take verse 4. 15 in the context of the chapter. Anytime, if you are studying a verse of Scripture in your private study, even uh, uh, in a corporate worship or a corporate class, it is important to study the immediate and, if possible, even the remote context. You know, the religious world gets into a lot of trouble taking a verse and pulling it out. And we don't want to do that tonight. So the most remote context, the context of the book of Hebrews, let, let me, as we get into this, let me make a statement here. We can have a sermon tonight or we can have a class. You know what the difference is? If you talk, we will have a class. If you don't talk, we will have a sermon. So I'm leaving it all up to you. When we think of the book of Hebrews, what would the one-word summary perhaps you would give to the book. What, what's it about? Or you can use more than one word, whatever. What, yeah, better is a good theme for the book of Hebrews. The old law is not as good. The New Testament is better than the Old Testament. Jesus is a better savior and lawgiver than Moses. Uh, Jesus is better than the angels. Better, 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 better. What is the number one, what was the number one problem in the first century church? 
When you think of issues in the church today, you know those didn't necessarily parallel the issues in the first century church. Do you remember what the first and biggest issue in the church, no matter what congregation it was, what is the problem? Why did Paul write, and what was his main purpose in writing Romans and Galatians and Hebrews? Very similar books. What was the problem? Yeah, Christians, some, wanted to require that people become Jews before they became Christians. You have to remember, the first Christians were Jews, right, on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 of them converted. Well, as time went along, we even had what we called in the church Judaizing teachers. And Paul said that he was afraid of some of them because they were bringing into Christianity the idea of keeping the old Jewish law, keeping the Jewish feasts, requiring that males be circumcised before they become Christians, on and on and on and on. And so the book of Hebrews is continually addressing this idea of don't fall back under Judaism. And the parallel for that today, you know, not many of us fall back into Judaism, but we fall back into the world. And that's why it, it even takes a good amount of study in the books of Romans and Galatians to ascertain if Paul is talking about, because in those two books and the book of Hebrews, he's talking about, he's comparing systems. So when he talks about the flesh, is he mainly talking about you know, our lives in the flesh? Or is he talking about that old fleshly system of Judaism? When he talks about living in the spirit, is he talking about our spirits, our mindset? Or is he talking about the spiritual system being Christianity? And it's my opinion, in many cases, there's a dual application. He's talking about both. But that's an interesting sidelight of, of the study of those books. But in the book of Hebrews... More times, much, much more times than not, he's talking about falling back under that fleshly system. And it was a fleshly system, right? I mean, when you think of temple worship, it all appealed to the eye, what it looked like. The robes of the priests, the burning of the incense. It all appealed to the senses what it looked like, what it felt like, what it smelled like. But you know, it wasn't long until the Jews went into Babylonian captivity and they no longer had access to the temple and all of its rituals and, and uh, amazing sensory kind of things. So this is where synagogue worship began and much of Christian worship is based on synagogue worship. It was more mental and spiritual than it was physical. And it's important to see that. Very important to see that. You know, it's interesting that in temple worship, they used instruments to praise God. That's why you have passages like Psalm 150, praise Him with the symbols, praise Him with the... But in synagogue worship, when they were in captivity... They didn't have access to those things. And that's why you will never see in New Testament worship 
the Lord's church implementing a lot of those old temple ways of worshiping. Now, in, in modern religious worship, there is lots of the Old Testament incorporated into Christian worship, but in the first century, not so. In fact, in many cases, when uh, religions uh, of the day began, their leaders were vehemently opposed to anything that added to the worship of God, added to simple singing. And you know what? When you turn in your New Testament, there is no example of all uh, of any church music other than singing. Thirteen different verses. And we'll look at some of those tonight. But in Hebrews chapter 13, let's, let's just quickly go through the first 14 verses to get our context, and then we'll zero in on our verse for tonight, the fruit of our lips as it pertains to worship. Verse 1 begins in chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. Uh, verse 2, don't forget to entertain strangers. You know, Christian people are to be hospitable no matter where they find themselves. And we don't know when we entertain strangers or when we entertain those angels, sometimes they're called. What's an angel? What's, what's the uh, definition simply of an angel? Yeah, it's simply a messenger. If you're a faithful child of God tonight, congratulations, you are an angel. You are a saint. You are a priest. The Bible teaches the... Uh, uh, the priesthood of all believers, not just a certain class. But we have to be sure as angels of light that we be careful when we entertain people, when we have to do... You know, that's all included, no doubt, in the providence of God. And so uh, the Hebrew writer is discussing that. In verse 3, he's encouraging us to remember those that are in bonds as being bound with them. You remember what Jesus said when, um, you know, he was indicating to his followers you need to, to clothe those that are naked and to feed the hungry, and inasmuch as you've done it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me, right? That's entertaining strangers. That's being the angels that God wants us to be, you see? And so then in verse 4, he talks about marriage. So we're not limiting our thoughts here to worship. And this has to do with daily life. Marriage is honorable and all, and the bed, the marriage bed, is undefiled. Verse 5, let your manner of life, right, be without covetousness. It's not a matter, the Christian's mission is not a matter of seeing how he can make the flesh comfortable. That's not what the Christian life is about. Uh, so when we have this mindset, then verse 6 applies. Then we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper because I've decided in my mind to live according to his, to his word. Then in verse 7, remember them which have the rule over you. Speaking of the elders who have spoken unto you the word of God and many of the elders slash bishops that they were called primarily in the first century, that was their, that was their responsibility. Well, he, we have a responsibility to them as well. And then in verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That would be true in worship and outside of worship. 
So we're not in a specific worship context yet, are we? Verse 9, don't be carried about by different doctrines. You know, in some religious circles, that word doctrine is a bad word. And there seems to be this chasm in the minds of some between doctrinal issues and love issues. You know, when you get into this idea of trying to splice or compartmentalize God's Word, then there are divisions that come into our thinking and then practically into our lives that the Bible just does not make. In fact, hermeneutically, when we approach the Scripture and we want to please God in what we believe and what we're trying to do with our lesson tonight is not to take one verse out, but we have to see how they correlate. And it's so important to do that. And when we say that grace and works, love and law, and all of that are somehow separated, then we are going to be carried away by strange teaching. Because God's Word does not do that. It's like a glove, a hand and a glove. These kinds of doctrines, these kinds of teaching go hand in hand. And there's not this division. The God, how about this one? Have you ever heard someone talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? Oh, give me a break. Jesus Christ not being a created being, but being eternal, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus Christ of the Old Testament is the Jesus Christ of the New Testament. And same way with his fellow beings in the Godhood, in the God family. And so we don't want to separate them. Jesus prayed while he was on the earth, my will, let, let your will be done. In other words, let my will be your will. And that's what his followers will do. So don't be carried about by these different and strange teaching. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with what? Grace. Do you mean doctrine and grace are correlated? Oh, absolutely. You want to be established in your heart with grace? Then don't be carried away by strange doctrines. Grace and doctrine aren't mutually exclusive. They go together. And it's our responsibility to find out how they go together. Not with meats. Interesting phrase here. Here we have contrasted doctrine, or not contrast, well, contrast doctrine with meats. What does meats have to do with it? Are you familiar with how meats are used in the New Testament? See, now we're going into a more remote context. We take everything on a subject, what the New Testament has to teach. The plan of salvation is not in one verse. The religious world needs to be understanding that John 3.16 is not the catch-all. Because in John 3.16, when, uh, when, when the Lord stated that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, that's, that's in the same con conversation that he has earlier with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And you know what he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3? You can't go to heaven unless you're born again. 
And the Lord didn't leave us without a definition of what it means to be born again. And there was no sinner's prayer asking the Lord into their heart as their personal Savior. That's a doctrine of man. But what did he tell Nicodemus? He said, and he repeated it, but he defined what being born of the Spirit meant. He said, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born of water and of the Spirit. One baptism and two elements. And then it's in that context that he said, if you believe in me, you should not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe what? Well, what he just told Nicodemus in the beginning of the chapter. Everywhere we see John 3.16 plastered on billboards, I, every time I see it, I wish, I so wish, that they would put John 3.5, the same context, the same conversation, and what it means to believe in Jesus. It's just not a mental assent that he's the Savior, but believing or accepting the Lord in our heart as our personal Savior means, and that's a good phrase, it's just too bad it's been mutilated by the religious world and misdefined. I accept the Lord when I accept what he says, and not until then. And if I'm going to be his spokesman, I've got to speak exactly what he told Nicodemus. That's not my opinion. I don't have a choice in that. But that's why context is so vitally important. So we're looking at the context of verse 15, and we're seeing so far that it's not limited to worship. We're going to see in a minute where worship is included. But the fruit of our lips must come 24-7, not just one hour on Sunday morning. Now watch. Not with meats. In the New Testament, part of this Judaizing influence was that you couldn't eat meats that were offered to idols. And in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, we clearly see what Paul had in mind and what he concluded about it, being an inspired writer. He said... Summarily, it doesn't matter. But if I'm around people that believe it's sinful for me to eat meats that were offered to idols, I won't eat meat as long as the world stands. If every one of us had that attitude toward our brother, nobody would be clamoring for their opinions. We all would be eager for the other person to get their way in those matters. And how many problems in the church automatically go away if I want you to have your way before my way in matters of opinion. Do you think I even want to, as a minister of a congregation, to even put my foot in the issue of what color the carpet should be? I can't wait for you to have your way in those issues. And that is so important, and it's so vital, even into the understanding of this chapter and this verse that we're dealing with tonight. Watch it. Watch this. Not with meats, those that were pressing the issue, which have not profited them that have been occupied in that, in that discussion. In fact, you know, the Old Testament Jews had their hallmark of holidays as well. And in paganism, in pagan Rome, and in the Jews, they all had their hallmark of holidays. And they weren't content to leave those holidays 
of a secular nation, of a secular consideration, they wanted to bring, in order to put Christianity on the par of the pagans and to attract the world, the pagans did it with their hallmark calendar. So you know what the first century church was doing? And Easter was one of the first ones. Long before Christ's mass, Christmas, became a, a holy day. New Testament knows nothing of that. And Paul says, if you're going to recognize those holy days, bring it into the worship. I fear for you. Some men esteem those days, and that's fine, privately. Don't bring your hallmark calendar into the worship of God. Because you know what? That hallmark calendar is not consistent with the pattern of worship that the Lord established. And so... That's why Paul, the eating of meats and all of that, you know, and, th and that's where religion comes up with things like they wanted to take the life of Christ and they wanted to make a holy day out of all those events. Why, where do you think Palm Sunday came from? That didn't come from the New Testament. Where did Christ's mass come from? You can't read of that in the New Testament. In fact, really, literally, you don't read of Easter in the New Testament. The word Easter in Acts chapter 12 and verse 4 in the King James Version, literally is Passover. But you know the influence of uh, Protestantism and King James, who authorized that translation? And by the way, the King James Version of the Bible is a very good word-for-word -word translation of the Bible. But it missed it in that, in that translation. There was no, quote, Easter in the first century, or these other uh, secular holidays. And so the eating of meats, that was, that was a, a big deal to a lot of people. And he goes on to say in verse 10, we, we Christians, have an altar. It's not the same altar in temple worship. It's a different altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. In other words, the altar that we serve is the altar of Jesus Christ. And it's a spiritual thing, right? God does not dwell, watch this, in temples made with what? Hands. It's, you know, the church is more spiritual than the temple that was built with hands. So forget about the temple in that sense, as far as applying it to your life and the rituals that went in that. You and I are amenable to the New Testament. Jesus nailed that old law and all of its rituals to the cross. It's not that members of the Church of Christ don't believe in the Old Testament. But you know what? If people really believed in the Old Testament, they wouldn't pick and choose a smattering of things. They'd still be offering sacrifices in their worship to God if they truly believed that they lived under the Old Testament. Well, I'm glad I don't live under the Old Testament. If you've read the book of Hebrews, you're glad that you don't live under the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul said that that law was contrary to us. And he took it out of the way, Jesus, nailing it to the cross. Why did he do that? How was the old law contrary to us? Well, it just pointed out how sinful we were. And it never provided a remedy for sin because the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 10.4, by the way, couldn't take away sins. And so the altar that we come before on the Lord's day, we don't shed literal blood. And by the way, the fruit of the vine doesn't transform miraculously into the literal blood of Jesus. 
but it's a memorial, again, spiritual. Doesn't matter what it looks like, doesn't matter what it tastes like, doesn't matter what it sounds like, because we are in Christian worship now. And what should be emphasized is the meaning behind that imagery. And so here in verse number 9 and verse 10, he's contrasting that all. But that shouldn't surprise us because we know the context of the book of Hebrews. Now watch this in verse 11. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary, again referring to, to temple worship. So now we're, we're crossing the divide from our individual personal lives into worship life now. For the bodies of those beasts, the animals that they offered in sacrifice, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary, and by the way, we want to borrow too much phraseology and ideas from the Old Testament. I hope none of us think tonight that we're in the sanctuary. Don't call this room a sanctuary. It's not. It's a room. And the room is not holy. You don't get holiness through osmosis by being around religious things, religious people, the Lord's Supper, hearing a lesson, praying. That doesn't make you any more spiritual or religious. The people comprised in the room who worship according to spirit and in truth, that's the holy ground. So when we sing the song where we're standing on holy ground, that is a metaphor not to be literally confused with the carpet and the floor and the walls. But it's our righteous life. That's what's holy. The kingdom of God is where? Within you. You don't go to a place necessarily, and that's what Jesus said about true worship, right? When he told uh, the Samaritan woman, your people worshipped in Mount Gerizim. The Israelites worshipped in Jerusalem. Jesus said the time is coming when true worship is going to take place anywhere, not just in those places. And the Father is seeking people that are worshipping in spirit, the right mind. You know, sometimes that's difficult, right? You know, uh, I came from the area of Pittsburgh. And, you know, sometimes at 1 o'clock on Sunday, I'm looking forward to the Steelers game. Huge Steelers fan. You know, but I have got to do my best to dismiss those thoughts when I'm in worship if I'm going to worship in spirit. Anytime you see the word spirit in the New Testament, whether it's referring to the Holy Spirit or our own human spirits, Write in your Bible the mind. That's what, that's what that word is, the mind. That means when I come into holy worship, that I am going to worship in spirit by doing my best to keep thoughts of this world out. And we've heard that expressed at the Lord's Supper and in lessons, and that's very true. And that's how my worship is pleasing to God. And this idea that the Lord seeks such to worship him, that word seek is an emphatic implying that, you know, God can find worshipers anywhere. But he's seeking true worshipers. The ones that have learned to exercise their spirit, their mind, in thinking about what they should be thinking about in worship. 
The father seeks. That means he's not finding them on every street corner. He's seeking those to worship him. They that worship him can worship, can choose to worship in spirit and truth, can worship as they see fit, can join the church of their choice. Where was anybody told that in the New Testament? How did we get? Our, our theme for the whole year at Woodstock is unity. And the, the sub-section that we're in now is, how did we get from one church to 38,000? How did we do that? Is that God approved and God ordained? We can take every religious group and see who the founder was, where it was founded, but, you know, there was one founder of the church. There was one place where it started, Jerusalem. And it was in the days of the Roman Empire, AD 30, on the day of Pentecost. Anything else is an addition. It's pretty simple. But here, uh, he's talking about the blood that was shed, literally, from animals in the sanctuary. And the high priest did it for sin, right? We use accommodatively the idea that sins were rolled forward. And they were burned without the camp. So Jesus also, that he might sanctify, that just means set apart. We are sanctified or we become saints when we become Christians. We're set apart from the world. We leave the world and we're baptized into Christ based on our faith and repentance. And it's all done by the grace of Jesus Christ. He sanctifies the people with his own blood. Now watch this. He suffered without the gate. He wasn't crucified in Jerusalem. He was crucified outside of the city without the gate. The gate here is Jerusalem. Again, a metaphorical usage of the word gate. And so the blood is brought when someone comes into Christ. He contacts that blood when he's immersed into Christ. As Paul would say to the Romans, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? That's where the blood flowed. So one cannot pray a sinner's prayer or ask to be saved directly from heaven before he obeys the gospel, culminating in immersion in water. I'm still looking for the sinner's prayer in the Bible, and I can't find it. I'm looking for it. Well, here's how the blood comes in. So verse 13, let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp. That is, we come together to worship and to offer our sacrifice, and then we go into the world to do what? To suffer. You know, some people think that the central idea of the Christian life is worship, and there can be nothing further from the truth. The Great Commission isn't go into all the world and worship. Worship is absolutely essential. We cannot forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But let's not think because we come every Sunday that that necessarily implies that we are meeting our Christian duty. Meeting our Christian duty primarily is done outside of these four walls. That's the Great Commission. And we need to be greater in emphasizing. 
You know, this idea of going to church, where did you ever learn that phrase? Why do you use it? The Bible doesn't teach going to church. You know who started that? You know what man started that? His name was Constantine. Right around the beginning of the fourth century. What he tried to do, in fact, he Christianized the whole Roman Empire, Christianized them. He didn't, he didn't call for a change of their lives, but in fighting wars, he thought the God of the Christians was, was with him. So what he did is he made big cathedrals, and he was determined that no pagan would pass his cathedrals to go to the pagan temples. So he Christianized 90% of the Roman Empire, and he wanted them to go to church. Try to get that phrase out of your vocabulary. You're the church 24-7. You're the body of Christ outside of worship. We go to worship. We go to services. I hope you don't go to church because to go somewhere means that you're not there at a certain time. The body of Christ doesn't cease to exist. The kingdom of Christ doesn't cease to exist. The bride of Christ doesn't cease to exist when you're not worshiping. It's still there. And all of those are synonymous with the church. So why do we go to church? I hope you go to church all the time. I hope you're in church all the time. You're in the body all the time and effect effectively functioning as the body of Christ. Well, look at this. We're coming down to our verse now. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach, as we teach others. For here we have no continuing city, Jerusalem is not holy today. That's not, that's not the holy land. Now, a lot of holy things happened there at one time. When Jesus was here, a lot of holy things happened there. But there's nothing holy about Jerusalem anymore. Unless we metaphorically mean the city of God. Not made with hands, whose builder and ruler is God. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And I bet you know what that city is. That holy and beautiful city whose builder and ruler is God we sing about. Now here we go. Here we go. Here it is. This is where our lesson comes full circle. But to do, uh, by him therefore, speaking of Jesus, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is... The fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, what have we seen so far in the context? We've seen our own personal lives, much of it outside of worship. And we've seen the Hebrew writer here bringing worship into it, especially to go along with the theme of the book of Hebrews, the temple worship, right? And so when we come to verse 15, why do we limit that to worship? Worship is certainly included. But the Lord deserves the sacrifice of our praise and the fruit of our lips as we meet as the church, which is 24-7 and not just in worship. In verse 16 through verse 19 is talking about this same idea. I don't know that verse 15 is even limited to singing. Because I offer praise in the fruit of my lips when I'm praying. And when I'm teaching others the gospel or encouraging members outside of the worship service. 
Now, certainly it would apply to the worship service, but I don't know that we necessarily need to limit this verse to the worship. Given the context of what we've seen here in, in the chapter. So, when we think of true worship, you know, you have many things in life that challenge you, don't you? Jobs, educational pursuits, uh, trials, temptation. But nothing really has the challenge to, uh, to come into your life any more than worship. It's a challenge to be a true worshiper of God. And it's a glorifying and gratifying thing to worship God acceptably. Many people purpose to worship God. But sometimes there's a limitation of how to do that. Worship has always been an overt act rather than a continued attitude or relationship. Over the years, worship has been confused with service. Some translations of the scripture don't really help us in that regard. But again, when you look at the totality of what the Bible has to say about worship, there's a beginning time and an ending time. It's not experiential. Proskuneo, it's limited to an act. The word actually means to kiss toward, giving homage to God by thoughts, words, deeds. And let, let me indicate this as far as the definition is concerned. And I know this is a bad word a lot of times. It also includes acts and steps. The worship of God throughout Scripture has always been regulated. It's never been up to man to choose how he worships God, ever. There's a starting place to worship, and it's always in the mind. God said, he said in many occasions, you know, your overt acts are making me sick. Why? Because God didn't command those acts? No, because the heart didn't come first. They weren't worshiping in spirit. It was important to be involved in the right acts, but minus the heart still equals vain worship. That's why it's so important, brethren, when we come together, we need to fixate our mind on what is being spoken, what is being prayed, and what is being done. Nearing Mount Moriah, Abraham told his servants to remain behind while he and Isaac went to worship. Now, I'm sure that Abraham was thinking about God and the things God told him to do as he was trudging up Mount Moriah, or the mountains, one of the mountains of Moriah. But notice that it wasn't called worship as he was going up the mountain. They were going yonder. They were going over there to worship. A beginning place and an ending time. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19, Elkanah and his family rose up early to worship. If all of life is worship, why weren't they worshiping? Why was he going to worship? In spite of these modern objections, the Bible says that such expressions as come to worship, go to worship. The Ethiopian eunuch, he was in the chariot, and what was he, where was he on his way? What was he on his way to do? He was going to Jerusalem to worship. You mean he wasn't worshiping in the chariot on the way? He had a plan to worship, and so should we today. 
The importance of this verse, as especially as it pertains to worship, I think, has been clearly seen. God has always expected in worship more than a mechanical response. We can't think that when we have been in a setting where God's intended worship has been engaged in, apart from our spirit, apart from our mind, that that is true worship. The Israelites were told to fear God, to walk in all of his ways, and to love him and to serve him with their whole heart and with their whole soul. Deuteronomy 10, 12. To look at worship under the Old Testament as a set of rituals only does those people a great injustice. As we see in John 4, 24, as we alluded to, what true worship really is. The nature of worship in the New Testament and the basis specifically here for singing is an expression of deep feeling based on the Word of God. And it shouldn't take the song leader and how he performs to keep you spiritually engaged. Whether he starts that song a little high, a little low, I hope that that's not a prevailing thought in your mind. If that song on any given Sunday was sung a little bit less than, uh, than, it, than it should be, at least from our standards, I hope that's not what's emphasized in your mind. I hope the thoughts and the sentiments of what we're singing to God, who is the audience of our worship? We're not the audience. Worship is not about us and how we feel about it and how we, you know. It's giving the fruit of our lips, the fruit of our bodies as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, we are sacrificing, as this verse teaches, the fruit of our lips and the fruit of our minds, by the way. Listen, if the fruit of our minds are not right, the fruit of our lips can't be. It all begins in the spirit. It all begins in the mind. It all begins with worshiping in spirit. And that's what the Hebrew writer, even in this verse, as it is applied not only to worship, but our lives, is what God wants. Remember, the worship in first century, pagan worship of the Greeks and the Romans, was performed as a civic duty to pacify the anger of the gods. We don't worship a god like that. The Lord is with us in worship, and he's seeking true worshipers. Worship in the mystic cults was engaged in order to gain an experience, to be physically stimulated. Can't we take an hour out of the week and not have to give in to the lust of the flesh and be stimulated physically? I mean, how many times does God allow us that in our lives to enjoy events? How many times do you eat in a week? You know, how many times are, are, are you entertained in a week? Worshiping to the true worshiper is not going to service to see primarily what he can get. Oh, I didn't get anything out of the worship. Do you know how that implicates you? It's not the performer's problem. But immature people would come with that kind of idea. We come to worship to see how much we can give, and God will make sure that we get what we need. There has never been a worship service 
in which I've ever attended that I could legitimately say I didn't get anything out of that. And I hope the same is true with you. When the people in these pagan religions thought that their outward show was sufficient to impress each other, the gods then were appeased. Dionysius was the god of wine, and his devotees would become drunk in the belief that this allowed their gods to enter them in order to surrender their will to an experience and act like drunken fools. I am not going to insult your intelligence in asking you to apply that spiritually to our modern time. It was in this context that Paul said, Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with excess. Not applied only to alcohol, but to anything that would take our minds from spiritually serving God to making our bellies the God, right? And then he says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the mind of God. Speaking to yourselves, are we ready? We're coming full circle now. Speaking to yourselves in what? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, Singing, not playing, singing and making melody, not on a mechanical instrument of music, singing and making melody in your heart. Every time you see the word heart, spirit in the Bible, just write mind right beside it. Two basic ways that the word spirit is used in the Bible, God's Holy Spirit and our own human spirit. Romans 8 says, when our human spirit bears witness with the Holy Spirit, then we can be sure that we're sons of God. So, when I am singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, in my heart, that means what? In my mind. Why would Paul say in 1 Corinthians 14, in those three chapters that are de dealing with spiritual gifts, of which... The, the gift that was most abused was the gift of tongues, because what did tongues do above all the other gifts? It showed it was a physical thing that people would be, you know, secularly, fleshly turned on if somebody could speak in tongues. Paul would go on to say in chapter 14, if you don't have an interpreter there, don't do it. I'd rather speak uh, 10 words of understanding than 10,000 in an unknown tongue. But he says in that context, I will sing with the mind. I will sing with the spirit. I will understand. I'll understand what I'm singing according to the spirit's instruction. That's what true worship does. It doesn't just come in and sing a song and sing a melody and say, oh, didn't that sound good? Because you are teaching and exhorting one another to sing and worship. And by the way, that's commanded. You don't have a choice whether or not you sing. Even if you or others don't think that that quality of, of singing meets a certain standard. That's not what God is looking for. He's looking for the heart, and he's looking, according to this verse, in a worship context, the fruit of our lips. Nobody's excluded. That's why we don't uh, listen to singing in a 
you know, from a choir or presented. That's why it is congregational. That's the only kind there was in the New Testament. But it depends if you want a religion that focuses on the spirit and what is being said, or if you desire a more pagan type of religion that appeals to the flesh. It all depends on our approach to Scripture. Do we believe what the Scriptures teach in giving the sacrifice and the fruit of our lips? All right, is that the final bell? Is that a first bell, second bell? You know, we all do it differently. That's the second bell. All right, well, I will respect that. And you have been a wonderful audience. And uh, I appreciate your attention. And I would, I would beg you that when you offer the fruit of your lips, whether in a worship service or in your life, that you make sure it's consistent with what God would have you say and to sacrifice your whole being into the service of God. And one great day, one great day, we will all be glad that, that we did. Thank you very much. Do I need to do something? <laughs> okay. Do I need to extend the invitation? Okay, let me do that. Let me do that. And Kyle probably told me to do that, and like uh, any good preacher, I forgot. Um, well, let's just, t let's just go from John chapter 3, a great place to extend an invitation because Jesus was extending the invitation to Nicodemus. And it's interesting what Nicodemus said there. Well, Jesus started the conversation and he asked Nicodemus a question. And it's interesting how the Lord extended the invitation there and he said, you know, Nicodemus, you must be born, you must be uh, born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Well, isn't that a controversial issue today in religion? What does it mean to be born again? Some people say it's a prayer. Some people believe that the Holy Spirit has to work uh, in some miraculous way to confirm his word, you know, and those kinds of things. But Jesus defined for Nicodemus, Nicodemus said, what do you mean being born again? You know, I always give credit for Nicodemus. A lot of people, you know, look at Nicodemus here and say, wow, what a wacko. I think that Nicodemus believed that, that Jesus could do it if he wanted to do it. You know, Nicodemus was a good Pharisee. You know, there were a few of those. Joseph of Arimathea and Saul of Tarsus had a good heart, right? Lived before God with all good conscience. But Nicodemus said, can a man enter his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, no. That's not what I'm talking about. Speaking metaphorically again, Jesus said, except a man be born of the water, which is immersion in it. It's not the water at childbirth, as some would teach. That's the problem that Nicodemus had. It's not dealing with the physical birth process, but it's a spiritual birth right? Unless you be born of the water and the spirit, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of God. And then at the end of that conversation, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Notice this, that whoever believes, what are the next two little words? Whoever believes in me, that's what we're inviting you to do tonight. If you're not a member of the New Testament church tonight, you can become a member by being born again of the water and of the Spirit's teaching. And you're going to be believing in him. Well, how do I get into him? The Bible teaches in Romans 10, 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith doesn't come miraculously. It has to come through study. 
And then based on the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and your willingness to repent of any way that is in contradiction to God's way, if you'd be willing to do that, then you have the right to become a child of God. You can then be born of water where you contact the blood of Christ and you are automatically then added to the one church of the New Testament and not the other 37,999 or so that exist today because they weren't established till much later. And that makes sense then when Peter was on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and he told the people that wanted to become Christians who were actually there that crucified Jesus. If, if God can forgive that sin, he can, he can forgive easily all of the sins of us combined. He told them they'd already believed. He pricked their hearts, convincing them that they killed the Savior. So where did he take them? Where they were, and he said, repent, every one of you, and be baptized, watch this, in the name of Jesus Christ, in, for the remission of sins. You know, I didn't get into this auditorium when I got into my car at the house and started driving to Buford. I wasn't in this building uh, as I was going through the roads and I came into the city limits of Buford. I only came into this building when I crossed the threshold out there at the back door and I stepped into it. When I'm believing in Christ and I'm confessing Christ, Romans 10, 9, and 10, I am believing unto righteousness. I'm not in righteousness. I am confessing unto salvation. I'm not in salvation. And there's only one act in the New Testament that culminates that and tells me how I get into Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 is one of those passages where all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Paul, how am I a child of God by faith in Christ Jesus? For, as many of you as, here's our phrase again, been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. In other words, if I haven't been baptized into him, if I believed I was saved before I was baptized, you know, in that case happened in Acts chapter 18 and 19, there were those that were baptized, they were immersed in water, but that baptism wasn't effectual because they didn't understand that, you know, they were baptized with John's baptism. They weren't baptized for the right reason. So not just any baptism will do. You see, there are those that believe that they are baptized because they've already been saved. They weren't baptized into Christ. They prayed into Christ when they said a sinner's prayer. But you know, even in the New Testament, people weren't saved directly from heaven. It always had to go through a preacher or a teacher. What a wonderful opportunity that Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord didn't say, get on your knees, accept me into your heart as your personal Savior and pray for salvation. He could have said that. He said no. He wasn't even saved directly from heaven. He said go into the city. It will be told you there what you must do. Well, wouldn't it make sense to find out what he was told to do? And that's the same thing that we're told to do. And this is consistent with every plan of sal or every instance of the plan of salvation in the book of Acts. You know, perhaps you're not a member of the Lord's Church tonight. You can be. You know, I've always told folks, you know, when I study the Bible with people, I like for them to be the teacher. I want them to teach me. And I assure every one of them that if you can find the religious group that you attend, if that's the New Testament church, the terms of entrance, the worship, I will gladly resign as a minister in the Church of Christ, and I will become a part of that. I just want to be what they were back here, whatever that was. 
then I have the confidence of knowing that my spirit can bear witness with the Holy Spirit that I'm a child of God. And that's what we're imploring for you to do tonight. Just let your spirit be guided by the word of God and do what it says to become a Christian, irrespective of all the different places of salvation. You know, you could go down the street here and you could go to the next five religious groups and ask them what they believe you need to do in order to be saved. You'd probably get five different answers. Well, the Bible's not that confusing. The Bible's not that confusing. You can be washed in the blood of the Lamb tonight. And what an exciting possibility that is. And if you want to do that, there are good people right here tonight that would love, dearly love, to assist you in your conversion. If you'll come down one of these aisles, we're going to stand and sing an invitation song. And this is just for you. This is God's Spirit and the Bride singing right to your heart. And that's what we've talked about tonight. This is the fruit of the lips. And that's an important thing to God. And it's important that we respond to that when that is in consistency with his word. Think about these words and respond accordingly as together we stand and sing. Understand.
Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we've had today to be a part of your kingdom. We thank you for all those who have attended tonight virtually and in their places with us here at the building. We're thankful for the means that we have to be connected with the body and to be a part of the body that makes up the bride of Christ. Father, help us in all of our being to glorify you with our thoughts, uh, with our actions, with our feelings, with how we treat one another. Father, we pray that we would continue to be joyful in the hope that we have, that we would be patient in the affliction that we experience, and we pray that we would be faithful in our prayer and in our communication with you. Father, we live in a time that is not new under the sun, but is certainly a time that uh, surprises us in ways compared to what we've experienced in our lives at times. And we just pray that we would not be alarmed by these things, but that we would instead, with temperance and with faith, stand firm and be able to be filled with hearts, with grace and love for one another, but for those around us that would even cause us to suffer. Thank you for your only son who came to this earth and testified that in his life. And we just pray that we would, to the best degree that we can, embody that in our lives so that we can bring glory to you and knowledge about you to other people. Be with us as we depart this place and go back to our homes uh, for those that are tuned in virtually tonight. Help us to be the church all the time and to realize the duty, the responsibility that we have, the reasonable service and response to the mercy that you've given us, and to fulfill that opportunity with our heart. Thank you for your only son, and we pray that you continue to be with all of those that are seeking you, that we would be counted among those, but that we would remember and support those that have endured trials because of their seeking of you, but that have also endured unfortunate events in this world. Be with the likes of my grandmother, but also all, Lord, that endure trials, but again, help us to be patient through those and help us to continue to have our resolve until death when we finally meet you and when we join you in the place that your son went to and has afforded us the opportunity to go to of his grace. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we ask all these things and we pray all these things in his name. Amen.